What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. This is the world that you know. The world as it was at the end of the 20th century. It exists now only as part of a neural interactive simulation that we call the Matrix. Are we living in the Matrix? Probably not, at least not in the way that Morpheus describes it in that scene from the movie. But there's a different concept called biocentrism that suggests our own consciousness, our own observations, play a key role in creating the reality that we perceive. For more than a decade, a pioneering stem cell biologist named Robert Lanza has been fleshing out the idea, and now he's teamed up with Seattle science fiction writer Nancy Kress to write a novel called Observer that weaves the scientific case for biocentrism into a fictional plot that's almost as way out as the Matrix movies. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the intersection of science and fiction. Join me and my co-host, Dominica Fetaplace, as we chat with Robert Lanza and Nancy Kress about the science and the fiction of Observer. Claims that our perception of the outside world depends on our perspective as an observer go back to Plato's allegory of the cave and the philosophical musings of George Berkeley and Immanuel Kant about the nature of reality. In a series of books about biocentrism, Robert Lanza points to weird findings about relativity, quantum mechanics, and particle physics as support for his view that the outside world is basically nothing but a vast sea of quantum foam until it's perceived by conscious minds. To be sure, there's plenty of weirdness to go around in conventional physics. Physicists are still intrigued by puzzles such as the two-slit experiment, in which beams of light seem to behave like waves or particles, depending on how they're observed. More than a century after Albert Einstein came up with relativity, it's still hard to wrap your brain around the idea that measurements of space and time are dependent on the observer. And there's also something called the many worlds hypothesis, which suggests that our universe is merely one of countless branches on a cosmic tree of causation. Lanza capitalizes on all that scientific weirdness, but not everyone is willing to go as far as he has. The philosopher Daniel Dennett says biocentrism looks like the opposite of a theory. Nevertheless, Robert Lanza has persisted. Observer, the novel that he co-wrote with science fiction author Nancy Kress, puts biocentrism at the center of a plot that features a conflicted neurosurgeon, a reclusive Nobel-winning drug discoverer, and brain implants capable of reprogramming consciousness. You can read it as a science fiction thriller or as an introduction to the tenets of biocentrism. When science fiction author Dominica Fetaplace and I chatted with Robert and Nancy over a Zoom connection, we didn't just talk about the science. In fact, I'd say we spent more time talking about how you combine the tools of science and fiction to tell a story, and why the line between science and fiction can sometimes get as fuzzy as a quantum system in superposition. I started out the conversation by asking Nancy to tell the story behind the writing of the book. Well, the story behind it 
is that um, our agent for this book put Bob and me together and we had a three-way phone conversation. And I was very intrigued about biocentrism, which I had not heard about. But Bob sent me his previous nonfiction books and I read them and we had a couple more conversations. And I really not only was intrigued by the ideas, but shared some of them already about consciousness being woven into the universe. And so although I had never collaborated before on a novel, um, we agreed to do that. And it was really an interesting ride. Uh, what happened is that I came up with the characters and their situation, and I would write a section and send it to Bob, and he would go over it, and then we would confer, and I would rewrite it, and we'd go on like that. And we developed the plot together. Um, the actual situation I started with, but I wasn't completely sure where I wanted it to go. But Bob and the agent and I worked out the plot, and of course, the science I read all of Bob's books and tried to master it as much as I could. And I think Bob would agree that our main challenge was getting enough of the science in there to show that it's hard SF. This is based on actual science without turning it into a monograph or impairing the fictional elements that actually make it a novel. So that was our major challenge as we went forward. And when you talk about the plot, how much do you want to say about the plot? Like if someone were to ask, what is this novel about? What do you tell them in a couple of sentences? It starts with the characters, of course. Caroline Soames Watkins is a fledgling neurosurgeon who reports her boss for a sexual inappropriateness and a whole shitstorm comes down on her that makes it unfeasible for her to be working in the place that she was. The, it's uh, Part of it is online, and I know Bob is familiar with this kind of online shitstorm um, himself. <laughs> extremely destructive. She needs a job, and she needs one fast, because she is also the support of her sister and her sister's two children, one of whom is severely developmentally disabled. And she needs a job. Her great uncle, whom she's never met, is a Nobel laureate who 15 years previously just sort of disappeared. It isn't that there was any foul play, but nobody's heard anything from him. He finds out about her situation and offers her a job at an experimental research hospital that he's founded and has been going for 15 years in the Cayman Islands. And she is understandably wary, but on the other hand, she needs some money and it doesn't seem like she's gonna be able to find a job that deals with her particular background um, very quickly. So she goes to check it out. And what happens at that research station in the Cayman Islands forms both the fictional spine of the book and the vehicle for talking about biocentrism, because that is what they are doing, translating that into practical, if futuristic technology. And Robert, what would you mm -hmm. add to the elevator pitch? Yeah, from the scientific end, of course, the title is called Observer, where actually from the scientific end, the observer is actually the basis of the universe. So basically, the novel and the scientific ideas are really a rethink of everything we know about time, space, and, and indeed the universe itself. Gosh, there's so much to unpack in that. What was it from Nancy's perspective that appealed to what Robert was doing to have you get involved in this project? And then maybe the next part of that question would be, what was it that appealed to you, Robert, in Nancy's mm -hmm. background to say that, oh, this is the right person to try to tell this hybrid story? What appealed to me 
is the idea that consciousness is not an afterthought, something that just exists in us, but something that is woven into the very fabric of the universe. I'm not scientifically trained, but I write hard SF. I do a lot of reading books that are intended for layman. And I was already aware of all of the experiments, the two slit experiments that show not only that uh, a particle, a subatomic particle can behave as either a wave or a particle, but that the observation of that can change its path. It can even change it retroactively. We've known this since John Wheeler was doing his experiments 100 years ago. So I was aware of that. And when I started reading Bob's books, I thought, where is he going to take this? Where is he going to build on it? And he was able in his books, in a manner that way that the layman can understand, bring in things like entanglement, that as you know, Einstein calls spooky action at a distance, and a lot of other concepts of physics that I was being aware of, but had never all put together in the way that consciousness is not something we just happened to evolve when we were Neanderthals or whenever, but something that actually is woven into the way the universe functions. And as you undoubtedly know, Alan, this has already um, upended a lot of science. Einstein was not happy with it, um, with quantum mechanics. And that upended classical Newtonian physics, just the way his relativity had upended classical Newtonian physics. So you go from Newtonian physics to Einstein to quantum mechanics, and now to putting all of those various things together in a theory that suggests some some ways that they might all fit together, featuring consciousness. And as Bob knows so much better than I do, there are whole strings of famous scientists from Stephen Hawking to Max Planck to Niels Bohr, who have asserted that consciousness is part of the physics of the universe, not just part of our minds, part of the physics of the universe. And what Bob has done is take all of that together into a coherent theory. So of course I was intrigued. Who interested in the reality of the universe wouldn't be intrigued by those ideas? Nancy's one of the greatest science fiction writers alive. I mean, I love her work. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and honor to work with her. And, you know, she read the my three nonfiction biocentrism books and probably understands them better than most theoretical physicists. So, you know, she's being very modest, but she's brilliant, very creative and really grasps things quickly. So and I like the way she thinks. So, I mean, she seemed like the perfect fit. And it really worked out very nicely. I agree with all that praise for Nancy. Uh, I have a question for you, Robert. Okay. Uh, what was it like to write your very first science fiction novel? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously with Nancy on board, uh, it, it made life uh, you know, a lot easier than it would have been if I had given her a whirl. I mean, Nancy actually, you know, teaches uh, writing. She, you know, she's actually written books on, on writing and, and I wouldn't ever pretend to really be at that level. Uh, so, but it was exciting. You know, we, we went back and forth with the plot and, and give and take. And uh, yeah, it, it was a lot of, lot of fun. Uh, as Nancy pointed out, you know, there were some struggles figuring out, you know, how much science we could get in without losing the reader and yet enough to keep their interest. And as Nancy would attest to, is that, you know, when we did the first draft or two, you know, we had a lot of science to try to introduce the idea so it made sense, but we thought we were getting into too much of the science too early on that we might lose the reader. So, so I think now the final product, you go through it and it just seems natural. You'd, you'd probably wonder, well, wow, that just seems like the way it should have gone all along. This is a challenging book. There is some real science in there. And as Bob said, that was the the um, task that we had to make it 
it um, digestible. But it's still a challenging book. And the people it's going to appeal to are people who are both interested in actual science and interested in a story that shows how that might work out in real practical life. It's not a book for everybody, but I think if people give it a chance, they will see that there is a lot there, even if some of this science seems a little bit um, outside of what they already know. Well, you kind of get two great thinkers in one book. So it's kind of like a two for one deal with this book. Uh, Nancy, have you ever collaborated with another person on a book like this? And what was it like on your end to collaborate? This is my first collaboration on a novel. I've collaborated on a couple short stories with other writers, but frankly, the stories that resulted weren't as good as either of our work was separately. <laughs> um, collaborating with another writer is different than collaborating with a scientist. Um, Bob is the idea person here. And when you have two writers, you have two style persons and two character persons and two point of views fictionally. And for me, that didn't work out as well as, as working with Bob did for a novel. You do write a lot of hard SF, but your fiction also has a lot of empathy for the characters. And I think Kim Stanley Robinson mentioned that in his blurb for your book. So I'm curious how you balance the work of characterizing your characters and putting in those hard science fictional concepts. Well, that's always a challenge when you write hard SF. And that's why Bob and I went back and forth on several minutes. Nancy, uh, a few years ago, you told me that you're a science groupie and you love jumping at the chance to interact with cutting-edge research. After working with Robert on this book, how much of the plot do you think is grounded in real-world research, and how much of it is purely fiction? Because I don't think it's a spoiler to say that this goes pretty far out on, on the science by the time you get to the end of the book. The science is underpinned, and Bob can speak to this better than I can, with actual experiments. But of course it goes beyond what the experiments we can do now, because otherwise it wouldn't be science fiction. It would be a monograph and we might as well get in line for the Nobel for in medicine or something. So no, what it was is all of the science that Carol learns, Caroline learns at the research is based on actual real science. Where we take that jump, Bob and I, is with the computer chips that can be implanted in the brain. I'm not giving too much away there, I don't think. There are computer chips planted into brains. Well, not the whole chips, but there are, for instance, things like um, deep brain stimulation to control tremors for Parkinson's. There's a permanent wire put into the brain for that, and it attaches to uh, a battery that is outside the skull um, because it will need to be replaced. And that has shown some actual positive effects on Parkinson's patients. So we were working off of things that exist. But when we were working off of things that exist, obviously we had to go way beyond what exists now um, in order to create a fiction. And that's not to say that someday it might not actually happen, but that's the jumping off point. Robert, Mm -hmm. I know that you're probably aware of the experiments that have been done with Neuralink and uh, Elon Musk's thoughts about brain-computer interfaces. Is that something that you feel is very germane for the sort of concept that you're trying to put across or is Neuralink really not all that related to what you and Nancy have been talking about? 
Yeah, well, I, I think it's actually even bigger than that. You know, you hear a lot of talk, not only about Neuralink, but also, you know, we hear a lot about we're going to be creating machines and robots that can think and have consciousness like us. And the reality is, is, you know, as we go through some of these experiments in the book, is, is that not only are the observer uh, uh, determined findings of relativity and uh, quantum mechanics not anomalies, but they actually go to the root of the entire uh, nature consciousness concept. So I think that when you think about, well, are we ever going to create AI uh, or, or any of these kind of interfaces that we're, we're going to be able to recreate the concept of consciousness, I don't think you can do it without these concepts. I, I think it's extremely important that you understand this nature consciousness relationship, why we're getting these observer determined effects to begin with. And once we understand that, then I, I think then truly we could create the next uh, generation of AI where you actually could create machines and robots that, that can actually think very much like we do. Robert and then Nancy, I'm curious uh, if you have a favorite character in this book. Actually, I, I, I hate to say, I, I really like like them all, uh, you know, actually going into the storytelling, you know, Carol obviously is, is the main uh, character, uh, you know, obviously she's the one that the reader will identify with perhaps most. Uh, what we did do, you know, I, I don't know if I'm saying too much here, but but when we started with Caro, you know, uh, I think the word was that she was sort of uh, spiky uh, and we 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 toned her down. So she was a little more likable. Uh, and and I, I think that 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 helped a bit. And I, I also like the the old physicist, George. I mean, he's, he's just a, a marvelous character. You know, you totally identify with him. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I really uh, find George and, and Carol really uh, perhaps my personal favorites. I think my favorite was Trevor, who becomes, he doesn't enter the story till quite late, but he becomes an important relationship. And what I try to do when I write, if I'm writing anything romantic whatsoever, is fall in love with the character myself. I fell in love with Trevor. I, he's probably too perfect. I don't think there are any guys walking around here that are exactly that perfect. Domenica's nodding here. Um, I don't think there are any that are actually that perfect. But you do get to create them on the page, at least. <laughs> and so Trevor was probably my favorite. And he's probably about the eighth of my own heroes that I've fallen in love with. So you can call me a... a uh, serial fictional philanderers. And for people who haven't read the book yet, Trevor is the romantic interest, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'm, I'm imagining who's going to play that character in the movie version, but uh, we'll, we'll have to leave that for another day. Robert, I wanted to ask uh, whether it would ever be possible in the real world to have the sorts of reality-bending applications that are described in the novel. I can imagine hyper-realistic simulations that could be created on the fly with the aid of artificial intelligence, and I think uh, we might be seeing some of that if uh, the work uh, being done at Neuralink comes off. But even that is a far cry from what's described in the book. Yeah. So, so, I mean, the reason we were, I think, so careful going through the science and step by step in the novel was to, to explain to people how everything really works. And until you understand that, I think many of the things that happen in the book cannot happen. You know, as I alluded to earlier, I mean, you really need to understand how the algorithms of our mind work. I mean, if you think about it, and when you go to bed, you close your eyes, but yet you can still experience space and time, uh, just like you do in the real world. But yet, 
when you're sleeping, clearly they're not physical things. And so the same process that's going on when you're dreaming is what's happening right now as we're, we're speaking. And I think once you understand that, I think it, it, it wouldn't be a giant step to take it to the step that we did in the book. I mean, the chips, as Nancy pointed out, I, I think are a little bit beyond our technology, but I think in order to create uh, these kinds of um, settings that aren't just virtual, but actually real, I mean, I guess there's some question, you know, are your dreams real or, or what's real? But but the truth of the matter is, is, is that, you know, whether you're on drugs or you're hallucinating or have schizophrenia, uh, these are uh, the same biophysical process. I mean, our, our mind is, is uh, creating these experiences that we have, and they're all similar. You know, obviously, as we go into the book, you know, we're talking about a consensus reality, which is very much what you and I are experiencing now. And, and I think that once we understand how to recreate those algorithms, we will be able to achieve that. Yeah, let me let me build just a little bit on that because I wanted to say, and I forgot to mention it at the time, that the other strain that feeds into this, both science and biocentrism theories, the other one is a rich history of philosophers who have pointed out that reality, as Bob so very carefully and thoroughly discusses in his books, we only know the information that comes to us through our senses. That's all we really have. This is why something like the matrix can be so successful because people realize that what's being fed into your brain, um, in that case, it's different than obviously than in this, but is all that you really know. Um, and then your brain makes some sense of it. George Barkley, all the way back, and I incidentally, I named George Weiger George because of um, the philosopher yeah. from centuries ago said, was pointed this out very succinctly that you only know what information is coming into you. And it may be that that information is not completely accurate. It may be that your brain is interpreting it in a way that you think is reality, but isn't. We, we don't really know. We even feel that information differently. When I see red, I'm probably not seeing the same color you do, even though that's what, what whatever you're seeing and whatever I'm seeing, we've agreed to call red, but there's no way to check it. And Bob, again, spends a lot of time with this in his book and with the way that your brain is all that you really have for the interpretation of what you think is reality out there. Because all that may is really out there is a bunch of superimposed quantum foam. And that's the start of where the theory begins. And it has both a philosophical and a science pedigree um, that we tried to make use of both in the book. Yeah, I think yeah. that's an important point for people who are going to be reading the book to understand is uh, what's the fundamental nature of reality. And it's not necessarily uh, it, just because we perceive a table as looking like a table, that doesn't mean that that's actually what the fundamental nature of those atoms would be like. That's how we perceive it. And I, I know that, Robert, you've put a lot of thought into this and mm -hmm. uh, have, have drawn upon not only philosophy, but also studies of quantum physics. And, and the reality that we see is not actually the fundamental reality of uh, atoms and fields, which is something that goes back to the days of Immanuel Kant. Yeah, I know. I mean, even Einstein, I mean, he struggled with the quantum mechanics. I mean, you know, it really took everyone through a loop. And, and even to today, I mean, we just 
dismiss it as quantum weirdness. But the reality is, is that there are more and more experiments now that are showing that that quantum reality that we're seeing in the micro world now indeed extends into the macro world. I mean, entangled diamonds that you can actually see with your eye. I mean, they've sent uh, entangled particles through satellites to cities that are a, a thousand kilometers apart. Uh, there's more and more experiments that are showing that this isn't just a two world reality that we're experiencing, you know, a micro world and a macro world. And somewhere there's a line in between that we just have to accept the fact that that those experiments and what quantum mechanics is telling us applies to our world. Indeed, you know, I published a couple peer reviewed journals and, and physics journals recently sort of elaborating on this where, you know, uh, one of them, which was published in Inland of Physique, which actually is where Einstein publishes his theories of relativity. And, and, you know, as you know, Einstein said that space and time were relative to the observer in that scientific paper actually takes it a step further and says that it actually that the space and time themselves, like Immanuel Kant, as you hinted at, uh, has already said, are, are observer determined effects. So that when you actually are thinking in, in terms of space and time, you really have to think of what's going on in in the observer's mind. And what we show in the paper, or we suggest strongly, is that memory has a lot to do with it. And intuitively, we know that, you know, when you hear a doorbell or your cell phone ring, you cannot understand that without thinking about the silence that that preceded it. So you have to glue in your memory the silence with the sound. And the same goes with, with space. I mean, if you if you're looking at the screen or you're reading some text on your phone, you have to compare the white here with the black print here. And only that way can you put them together. And so without memory, you can't really have the arrow of time. And then there was another paper too that I recently published actually with two theoretical physicists, one who is is actually uh, one of the, the world's leading pioneers in quantum physics and quantum gravity. And then what that paper shows that it's actually networks of observers that actually determine the very structure of space-time itself. And I mean, not only at the micro world, but in very large distances that involve us, planets, and, and even stars. So all this, this scientific data, I think, uh, comes into play in the novel. And, and I think that's what we're hoping the reader will come away with understanding. Yeah, I want to emphasize and build on something Bob said earlier and also just uh, implied right now, which is that not all the pieces of this are known yet. And he has put together a basic outline of how they go together, but there are still thought processes, information missing. Um, Einstein famously said, God doesn't play dice with the universe. Well, it turns out he plays multi-level, multi-dimensional chess. And um, it's very complex to get all of those pieces together. And that is obviously still being worked on. What Bob has done is make a start on this. And the rest of the pieces are, as he just said, in experimental development now and will be um, in the next decade, two decades, three decades. And we will know more and be able to put together more of the pieces. Nancy, you've already mentioned the matrix. and when I was reading this, I was reminded of Neil Stevenson's Fall or Dodge in Hell and William Gibson's The Peripheral. Did you have any other like works of science fiction or, or science fiction movies in mind when you were writing this? No. And I have to say, I haven't read either of those books. And I'm probably the last science fiction writer in the world that never saw The Matrix. I only know a little bit about it from what people have said. But I, I, I probably should look at the damn thing, shouldn't I? And for Robert, um, mm-hmm. this 
alternate realities and multiverses show up in science fiction, do you find the representations helpful or are they more of a hindrance to introducing people to the concept of biocentrism? Well, I think, you know, I've seen them. There's hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of these programs that you see on, on Hulu and Netflix. And the the idea is, is intriguing and interesting, but it's all fantasy. I mean, there's no scientific background or, or support for that in those movies. What we're doing here that I think is completely different is, is that, that we're actually trying to build on reality. And so I, I think that it's those are helpful you know, people starting to think, hey, well, maybe there's something to this. And, and I think more and more between the matrix and, and, and these parallel universes and many worlds, people were starting to wonder, well, maybe there's more going on here than, than, than science has granted in the past. It can be helpful, but can also be really harmful. Um, you don't want to get me started on science fiction movies. because <laughs> I will do a long and very nasty rant about how the science is perverted. Um, one of the examples that really does frost me, for instance, is Interstellar, um, which starts out supposedly being based on real science. And by the time we've reached the end, the only things that can escape a black hole are Hawking radiation and Matthew McConaughey. Uh, come on, give me a break here. So um, I don't like the way the movies mostly do it. They tend to put wrong ideas and what Bob said, they tend to treat science like magic. It can do anything that they decide they wanted to do because after all it's science fiction, so who cares? Well, we care. I don't think it's going to come as a spoiler that the book addresses issues about life and death and what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of death? And this is something that emerges from consideration of the implications of biocentrism. Many of the critiques of biocentrism have drawn parallels to religious lines of thought, ranging from pantheism and Hinduism to Star Wars and the Force. Robert, does that bother you, that people talk about it in the context of a religion rather than science? What will it take to change the paradigm so that this is seen as rigorous science mm -hmm. rather than uh, religious speculation? Right. Well, hopefully, if someone reads all the way through Observer, you know, they will have a better understanding of what you're talking about. You know, I think that when you think about death, for instance, you know, you think, you know, well, is it an illusion? What's going on? There were obviously many very religious views on that. But, you know, even Einstein himself, he said those of right after the death of one of his good friends, he said uh, that now that Besso, one of his again, his, his best friends has passed. That means nothing. People like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between the past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. And he said, it means nothing. And the way I like to think about it is, and we, we talk about this actually in the book, is, is it's like one of those old phonographs where, you know, you're listening to one of the songs and you, you that's the present and the songs before are the past and, and, and ahead of it are the future. And, but just because you're listening to, to the, to one song at that point doesn't mean that when you, you stop listening that all the other songs go away. They actually exist in superposition, which is what these experiments are suggesting is what's happening when you're not observing it. So I, I think that when you put this all together, it all starts to really make sense that, you know, the, that the, the various nows, the past and future, very much like uh, Stephen Hawkins said, he said that the past and the future exist in, in superposition. And indeed, the scientific experiments are suggesting that. And, and when you ex accept that, you realize that, that death really doesn't have uh, the finality that we think it does. 
How do you think that the concept of biocentrism will be viewed five or 10 years from now? Robert, I know you've been working on this for more than mm -hmm. 10 years. Do you think that there will be some significant movement in the years ahead? It's tough. Uh, the, the great Nobel laureate Max Planck once said that a new scientific truth doesn't triumph by convincing its opponents and making and changing their mind, but rather because they die and eventually are replaced by a new generation that understands the ideas. And I think that's going to be true for any paradigm type of a change. Nancy, I wanted you to weigh on this issue. Five or 10 years from now, do you think that people will see Observer as solidly science fiction or will they look back and say, oh, yeah, there was some real science behind this? Well, I hope that's what they're going to see. But again, I'm not a scientist. This is a question for Bob. I'm not, I'm not trained. I look at science as um, a sort of wondrous playground that I can find, pluck things out of and create stories about in the present and in the near future. But I'm not trained as a scientist and I can't presume to say where it's going. I'm not sure anybody can. I mean, who, who anticipated quantum entanglement? Yeah, I, I would hope in a hundred years, someone's gonna look back and go, that book had it right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would love to be around in 100 years to see the end of the story when it comes to the <laughs> acceptance of biocentrism theory. Thank you so much for looking into the big issues that go into the writing of the book Observer. Thank you, Alan. Yes. Thank you for having us. Thanks to Robert Lanza, Nancy Kress, and Didi DeBartlow for setting up the interview. For more about Observer, plus Robert Lanza's biocentrism books and Nancy Cress's science fiction stories, check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com. If you go to GeekWire.com, you'll even find some bonus material about Nancy's connections to the Pacific Northwest. While you're online, check out DominicaFetaPlace.com. Don't worry about the spelling, just follow the link from the Cosmic Log item. Thanks to James Emily for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.